Hey, Miles, you know who's the absolute worst? Mastermind? Well, him too, but I was thinking of Cameron Hodge. I mean, at this point in X Factor, he's still ostensibly a good guy, but knowing where he's headed, there is literally nothing he says or does that doesn't creep me out. You mean the thing where he hacks all the X-Factor computers to convince Scott that Gene is turning into Phoenix and that he's gradually losing his mind? Well, or the thing where X-Factor turns out to be a really complicated plot for revenge on Warren for being cooler, culminating in amputating his wings and driving him to suicide. Or the thing where he makes a deal with a demon to feed it mutant babies in exchange for immortality. Or... That thing where, after Archangel cuts his head off, Hodge attaches it to mechanical spider legs, becomes the secret power behind a totalitarian anti-mutant slave state, Uh and then destroys and consumes Warlock, triggering the phalanx and almost bringing the Technarchy to Earth. What?! Hi, I'm Rachel Edidin. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here... To explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to the 54th episode of Rachel and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, outs, and retcons of our favorite superhero soap opera. We are finally at a new chapter in that superhero soap opera, that being the third major X title, X-Factor. Yes, this is my favorite series of this era. It is really good, especially once Louis Simonson takes over. It's also one of the ones with the most interesting origin stories. Like, New Mutants basically came out of, let's make another X-Book, it'll be cool, it'll have kids in it. X-Factor, on the other hand, is a little more complicated. What's a little weird about X-Factor, among other things, is that the creative team for the first few issues is only there for the first few issues. And that's Bob Layton, who's the writer of the first five issues, and Jackson Guise, who's the artist of the first eight issues. Primarily the penciler. A lot of the time there's someone else coming in inking and finishing, actually including Layton. So New Mutants and Uncanny X-Men both had something in common, and that was Chris Claremont. Claremont was behind almost the entire X-Universe at this point, barring the occasional spinoff. And now, X-Factor was the first series that he had nothing to do with the conception of that was actually pitched to Jim Shooter, Marvel's editor-in-chief, by Leighton and Guise themselves. Now, Leighton and Guise were huge fans of the Silver Age X-Men, and they really liked the idea of bringing back that particular team, or as much of it as they could get, considering that one member was dead, with a really similar premise, finding newly powered mutants and either taking them in and teaching them to control their powers or taking them out if they went evil. So Shooter was like, hey, that's a great idea. You guys should make that book. Since Jean Grey was dead, they're like, all right, well, we should have a female character. We should have a fifth character. Who's that going to be? Hey, let's use Dazzler. Now, they plotted out the first few issues of the series with Dazzler, but around that time, Marvel decided that they were going to retcon the Phoenix and bring back Jean Grey. There were some hasty rewrites there, and I actually have a quote from Jackson Guise, and I got this from uh, secretsbehindthexmen.blogspot.com, which is an awesome resource for X-Men information that you probably haven't heard of. Yeah, we'll drop a link to that in the as-mentioned post. Guise says, that was not in the original idea when Bob Layton and I presented the series. That was brought to us, and it was put in simply because it works as such a good story. We'd had the first five or six stories worked out already, verbally plotted, when John Byrne and Roger Stern approached Jim Shooter with this idea. And then they were called in, because suddenly it was like if there was any place they were going to have this event, it was going to be an X-Factor. But other than that, it was presented to us and worked into the storyline. We really had no part of bringing that character back. Now, originally, they had planned to work in Gene's resurrection later on in X-Factor, around issue 10 to 12, but ultimately it was decided that that was going to be the big bombshell that opened the series. So talking about hasty rewrites and stuff, I also uh, found out that apparently Jim Shooter, for reasons I'm, I'm not aware of, demanded that Leighton and Guise redo the first double-sized issue within like a two to three week time period, which I mean, Rachel, you've worked as an editor in comics. That seems a little crazy, right? I mean, that is demanding that unless you have an unbelievably good reason is just a 
bizarre managerial move. And apparently Leighton and Guise and the inker that they were working with were in Manhattan at the time, and a hurricane was about to hit. So they were actually evacuating Manhattan. They, I guess they were handed the key by one of the hotel staff, told to tape up the windows and wished good luck while they were working frantically as this hurricane was about to hit New York. I think we can describe the circumstances leading up to X-Factor number one as perhaps a perfect storm on multiple levels. No, if only Aurora were here to make the pun even worse. Oh, man. Okay, so that's the creative background of the book. Now, ostensibly the purpose of X-Factor was to get together the the original five X-Men in a team again. Let's look at who that is and where they are now. So, of course, we've watched Cyclops as he, his relationship with Madeline Pryor has built and been destroyed. We checked in with Jean last episode and her resurrection and the explanation and retcon of the Phoenix Force, but that still leaves three team members unaccounted for. Angel, Beast, and Iceman. So, Rachel, I know you and I aren't too familiar with what they were up to before they showed up in X-Factor. Right. I know Beast was on the Avengers for a while, and all three of them were with the Defenders, and Angel and Iceman were with the champions, and Angel and Iceman also went to UCLA some during that period, and Angel showed up in Dazzler a bunch, but I have no idea how any of that really connects chronologically. I haven't read any of that era. But thankfully, we know someone who has. So a warm welcome to guest expert Elle Collins. You may have heard her podcast Into It, which is fantastic and which you should be listening to if you are not. And Elle is an expert on this era and on the Defenders in particular. Welcome. Hi, it's nice to be here. Yeah, thanks for coming. So what's been up with the rest of the X team? I feel like the by far the character who has the most complex story during his time not with the X-Men is the Beast. Hank uh, had had a brief solo run in the early 70s in Amazing Adventures, you know, when he becomes blue and furry. And that's when he's working for the Brand Corporation, right? That's right. And he drinks his own mutagenic serum for no really good reason. And that's all going to follow him back actually to X-Factor, which is how I know about it in the next couple issues. And then after that, he joined the Avengers. He was actually a really prominent member of the Avengers for a lot of the late 70s. Meanwhile, at the same time that he joined the Avengers, Iceman and Angel joined the Champions. Now, who are the Champions exactly? There's, that's one of those super teams you hear about, but I never really knew what their shtick was. Their major shtick was that they lived in California while everyone else lived in New York. <laughs> Usually in the Marvel Universe, when they talk about the Champions, they're always referred to as the Champions of Los Angeles. The other three members, in addition to Warren and Bobby, were Ghost Rider, Hercules, and Black Widow. Kind of a weird oddball team. Wow. That book only lasted about 18 issues. People make fun of the Defenders a lot, but say what you will about the Defenders, they stayed around for a really long time and keep coming back. The Champions, eh, they lasted 18 issues, and that's pretty much it for them. So what's the Um, story with the Defenders? It's pretty strange. There's some adventures involving elves, and there's a whole storyline involving uh, one of their new members that joins named Cloud, who is a gender-fluid teenager who turns out to be a sentient nebula. That's awesome. Wow. That's so awesome. This is one of the reasons that I really, really love The New Defender. It's written by J.M. DeMatteis and... He was really doing a lot with subtext. Like, this was the early to mid-80s. And there's a lot of pretty overtly queer stuff going on in the new Defenders. They can't ever come out and say it because comics code. But it's really clear that he's already 
not only is he writing Moondragon as queer, which of course became canon later, Mm -hmm. but there are also multiple thought balloons where Valkyrie is thinking about the strange feelings that she gets when she looks at Moondragon. Okay, so this is like substantially more overt than Claremont's stuff with Kitty and Storm or Kitty and Ilyana or whatever. Oh yeah, so that's basically what the New Defenders is about. I mean, they fight supervillains too, but that's sort of incidental. That sounds like a really, really good home for a couple of Exiled X characters. In fact, speaking of homes, the main headquarters for the New Defenders was Angel's Desert Compound that we saw back in the Dark Phoenix saga. Right, where Scott and Jean have their their butte time adventures. Yeah, that's actually funnier if you just say butte sex. Butte sex. There we go. It's butte sex. Um, (laughs) So what kind of character growth do we see with those characters while they're on the Defenders? Uh, The three X-Men, that is. Angel, I feel like, is always Angel. There's an ongoing subplot about Angel having a crush on Moondragon, including one of my favorite thought bubbles ever, which is, I wonder what it's like to kiss someone who's bald. (laughs) Dear diary, I wonder what it's like to... (laughs) So then Iceman, he becomes this character in The Defenders that's all about the dichotomy between a human and a mutant superhero, which for him aligns with the dichotomy between being a respectable accountant and being a big goofball. The Beast had been through this whole metamorphosis, both physically and character-wise, over the course of his absence from the X-Men. When he joins the Avengers, he becomes the class clown instead of the class nerd. Yeah, and we definitely saw some of that version of Beast in the Beauty and the Beast miniseries. And so that very much continues in the Defenders There's a great scene between him and his longtime girlfriend, Vera, where she basically confronts him. She's like, you used to be this quiet nerd, and now you're just always performing for everyone. And he's like, look, I turned into a monster. This is how I deal with things. So I want to kind of talk about the end of The Defenders, because my understanding is that immediately before X-Factor number one, the entire rest of the team was killed. That is true. Cloud had already returned to space at that point, and then in the last issue of The Defenders, it's all the Beyonder's fault. The Beyonder shows up and increases Moondragon's powers, because Moondragon had always been a character who was sort of on the verge of being a supervillain, who would sort of go back and forth. And then she uses her powers to turn Gargoyle, who was another team member, who was usually a really nice guy that looks like a demon, into an actual big, scary, mean demon. And the two of them fight the defenders and ultimately gargoyle moon dragon valkyrie and andromeda the atlantean woman who had recently joined the team are all killed that is a Um, hell of a downer for a series ending how clearly are they killed because i think either angel or beast comments that they're apparently dead in x factor number one which seems like a pretty heavy tip that it might not be as permanent as it looked they sort of turn into statues I think it's Warren is trying to figure out if they're just paralyzed or, you know, if they're like trapped inside the statues. So he touches one of the frozen team members and they basically crumble into dust. So that's when they're like, oh, well, apparently they're all dead. Man. Yeah, well, they're doing surprisingly well by the time X Factor 1 rolls around. That's that's impressive. Well, I think we're out of time and we should get to the issue itself. But Al, thank you so much for coming on. We really appreciate it. Really quickly before we jump into X Factor, where can folks find you online? You can follow me on Twitter at another L. You can also find my podcast at intuitpodcast.com or by searching Into It with L Collins in the iTunes store. Awesome. Thank you again so much. Thank you. 
Now that we've got that background, I think it's time to jump into the story. X-Factor number one. This is a story called Third Genesis. We've already seen Second Genesis, which was Giant Size X-Men number one, so this story is already setting itself up with some pretty big shoes to fill. Let's look at the narrative status quo here. We talked about Hank and Warren and Bobby coming out of the Defenders. We are in the death throes of Scott Summers and Madeline Pryor's marriage. Even if Jean Grey hadn't showed up at this point, it would be questionable whether Scott and Madeline would have made it. And again, I am a big defender of the early parts of their relationship before Scott starts feeling pulled back into the X-Men more and more and more. I think they were a great couple until they weren't. There is the question of how much of the decay of their marriage was organic and how much of it was Claremont writing to what he knew was going to have to happen after he was finally told that Scott was going to have to leave Madeline and end up back with Jean. Well, Claremont only knew about the Jean Grey retcon uh, very recently uh, in continuity at this time. He'd only had a few issues to prepare for, and we'll talk a little bit more about that later. So I think part of it was just the direction he was taking the relationship, just throwing some more drama in there. Yeah, and X-Factor number one literally opens with them fighting. They're hanging out in Anchorage, Alaska, and Scott's paying a lot of attention to all the various anti-mutant sentiment stuff going on, and Madeline's like, hey... I understand that that's a big deal, but, you know, you made a commitment to me, and I feel like you're not paying attention to me or even your baby at all these days. And the thing about this scene is they're both horrible and neither of them is wrong. Now, as for the former Defenders, we see them at uh, Warren's mansion, where, as Elle mentioned, they'd been headquartered uh, before, you know, the rest of their team got killed. And they're preparing to move out, or at least Hank and Bobby are, and to basically give up the superheroing life, saying, hey, we gave it a shot, it didn't work, let's move on with our lives. And you see a series of scenes that that are very much these three guys trying to convince themselves that they really don't want to be superheroes when they very obviously still do. And I gotta say, like, I think Bob Layton gets kind of a bad rap for this arc of X-Factor, but at least in issue number one here, I think he gets the characters' voices, specifically those three, down pretty well. Their sense of camaraderie, their sense of history, it's very much there. Yeah, I mean, we've talked before about the rarity of writers who write really good nuanced Iceman, and Layton really does. Meanwhile, Warren gets a call. From New York, from Reed Richards, who, if you recall from last episode, has been around for the resurrection of the one and only Jean Grey, who has been encased in a pod on the floor of Jamaica Bay while the phoenix was running around pretending to be her and dying, and now Jean is back. I guess Reed figures, well, all right, Cyclops is a member of the X-Men. We don't trust them because of the Magneto thing. However, these guys that were on the Defenders, uh, specifically Warren, they don't seem to have too much of a connection. I bet we can trust them. They knew Gene. So Warren responds to this by flying into JFK, running in and promptly ripping off his shirt while running through the concourse while narrating himself in the third person, like some kind of mutant Dalton. I'm fucking rich people, man. It's beautiful. And everyone, of course, is freaking out like, ah, mutant, we hate them these days. I still love that the first thing he does when he gets into the airport is rip off his shirt. Well, you know, it's like you have to take your shoes off for security. Maybe he got a little confused. Well, he's talking about himself in the third person. I feel like you should just do that all the time if you can. It's amazing. It's so great. It is one of my favorite moments. Miles agrees. So, yeah, he meets up with Reed Richards, and Reed's like, hey, you gotta check this thing out. Please come with me. We're gonna head to the Avengers Mansion, which really begs the question... Why didn't you just have Angel meet you at the Avengers Mansion, Reed? Well, I assume that Reed was trying to be nice and meet him at the airport. I don't know. Well, he does still just tell him to follow him, you know, by flying in his wings as he heads there. So this issue is very much a pieces coming together kind of issue. So there are a lot of cuts back and forth. Uh, We now cut to something seemingly irrelevant, which is a sailor in the Navy named Rusty Collins. First of all, are sailors ever irrelevant? Second of all, the name Rusty Collins sounds like either a drink or a sex act, and I can't decide which. Uh, Yeah, so Rusty, he's this red-haired, very young, very innocent-seeming sailor. And his boss, who we just keep hearing uh, called Chief, I don't know if that's his rank. Yeah, he's got his name. Chief Fisher, his deck chief. 
So uh, Chief Fisher takes him out for drinks. He's like, hey, we're on shore leave. Let's have a good time. Rusty's like, oh, okay, if you say so, boss, whatever. And this is where things get really not okay. So Chief Fisher decides that what he's going to do is drag Rusty to a strip club where he will introduce him to a rather forward lady named Emma Laporte, who then drags Rusty out to the back alley for some uh, dubious canoodling. I feel like there's some kind of a, a pun to be made about any Emma Laporte in a storm, but, you know, that's too easy, so whatever. Unfortunately, this does not go well. Rusty is completely freaked out. He is freaked out enough, in fact, to trigger his latent mutant power. And instead of making out with Emma, he accidentally sets her on fire. And it's uh, kind of horrifying. I think Jackson Guise really sells how freaked out Rusty is and in what pain Emma's in. It's pretty vivid and pretty awful. But we won't actually see how that resolves quite yet, because back into New York... Warren has changed into his superhero costume for no apparent reason. Like, I love how weird Angel is in this. I maintain that this is one of those rich people are not like the rest of us storylines. <laughs> exactly. That's actually a lot of X Factor is kind of that. And Angel's just thinking about one big conflict, which is, as you might imagine, so Jean Grey's back from the dead. Do I tell Scott? Yes, obviously. But Warren is considering this for two reasons. The first of which is that Scott is married to Madeline now and it's going to make things weird. And the second of which is that Warren and Jean kind of used to have a thing going, and Warren thinks he might kind of want to go to there again, even though he's totally involved with candy. So um, the fact that you're wearing a superhero costume with a halo on it does not give you license to do whatever the hell you want, dude. <laughs> but no, he's got a really good point in worrying about what it's going to do to Scott and Maddie's relationship. I'm not sure if he knows how on the rocks they are, but, you know, when a person's old flame comes back from the dead, that is rather guaranteed to uh, throw a wrench into whatever relationship they might be in in the present. Ultimately, though, the decision isn't his because he realizes that Scott is, in fact, in the team lineup on the cover of the issue. So he really does have to call. That's pretty much the end of Scott and Madeline. Yeah, he uh, picks up the phone, clearly kind of freaking out. Madeline asks what's going on. He says, it's Warren, I have to meet him in New York. She asks why, and he doesn't tell her. At which point she says, you know, if you walk out that door, don't bother coming back. And he goes. So I know Chris Claremont was never a fan of what he saw as very much character assassination of Scott Summers right here. And dude's kind of got a point. Like, that is not an okay thing for Scott to do. At least say something. At least say, hey, it's very complicated. I need to process this, and then I will tell you, honey. Or something like that, right? Yeah, there's absolutely no question that Scott handles this terribly and is a total douche about it. On the other hand, as a fan of both superhero comics and nuance, I also don't feel like that kind of complete douchebaggery makes a character fundamentally and permanently unsympathetic. Yeah, that I completely agree with. I mean, I can certainly see why Scott would do that. I would hope I wouldn't do anything like that in a similar situation. But dude's under a lot of stress, and, you know, your dead girlfriend uh, just came back from the grave is not something you expect to be hearing or are prepared for. Well, I feel like that's kind of a fundamental characteristic of really good writing. And another thing that I really like about Leighton, making characters sympathetic but not necessarily excusing what they do. So Scott and Jean, you know, he does indeed show up to meet Warren, and he reunites with Jean Grey for the first time since she died on the moon, and he'll soon learn, really, for the first time since that space shuttle burning up and re-entry. She also doesn't have telepathy anymore, although why that is is never really explored. It's hinted later on that it's a result of the Phoenix thing. I think that it's actually pretty obvious that it's a result of this biostimulant that Reed Richards gave her when they were trying to wake her back up because, I mean, he's really clear about the fact that it will completely permanently mess up 
telepaths. Regardless, her lack of telepathy may explain why she seems a little dense, uh, in that Scott is clearly super messed up over this whole thing, and she just sees him as being a little awkward. The fact that she seems so emotionally oblivious is probably because she's used to relying on that telepathy. That's actually something they're going to explore much more a little bit later in the series, which is the extent to which Jean does feel really cut off from the world without telepathy. Her use of other social skills has somewhat atrophied. So she and Scott and Warren talk about kind of the state of the world. She realizes that she's missed a whole lot, and she's like, well, clearly things have gotten way worse. I mean, Magneto's running the X-Men, the entire world hates mutants, we've got to do something about this. And bear in mind, too, that Jean, actually even Phoenix, wasn't around for X-Men 150 and Magneto's redemption. So as far as she knows, as far as she remembers, he's just still a straight-up villain. Warren insists that he's put his superhero days behind him, which is hilarious, because of the three of them, he is the one who is literally wearing a superhero costume at this point. So here's the way I look at it. You know how there will be some little kids and they'll have their favorite Batman pajamas or whatever and they'll just insist on wearing them everywhere? I think it's kind of like that. Angel just does that with his own superhero costume. Do you think it's actually specifically like a lounge version of it? Oh man, I think it's terry cloth. It's like a, a winged Snuggie. The superhero equivalent of a Snuggie. Their Snuggies are tight to show off their physiques. All right. Now, Jean does want to be a superhero and she is furious at both of them. She blows up, knocks down a wall and flies away. Scott is clearly just falling the hell apart at this point. He can't even form complete sentences. Warren yells at him to get his shit together and goes after Jean. Meanwhile, at Harvard Medical School, Beast is blowing a job interview. Well, he's actually doing incredibly well at the job interview, but the dean is saying, hey, so you're a mutant and we're concerned about the college's reputation. Please understand it's nothing personal. And Beast does, understandably, take it personally. And yeah, he just drips down in the dean's office and jumps out the window. The dean's horrified, again, worried about the reputation. Which, to be fair, the last time I did that at a job interview, I totally got the job, so... Wait a minute, you're self-employed. And my boss understands me. So, yeah, Beast runs into a mysterious figure at the same time that Iceman gets a call while he's at his job uh, being an accountant. Iceman actually responds very much the same way that Hank did to the job interview, but in a celebratory manner in that he jumps up, goes ice form, and just skates the hell out the door. Yeah, so there's a big happy reunion as everybody now reunites at the place where Warren's been staying, this hotel. And man, I well, gotta say... almost everyone. That's true. Scott is still gone, but the rest of them do. And I gotta say, Beast's like big overjoyed hug of Gene, the whole like, oh my god, you're alive. It reminds me very much of that same hug he gives Cyclops after the X-Men are separated by Magneto like ages before. Beast just gets really happy when his seemingly dead friends are alive. I like that about him. That's entirely reasonable. Now you mentioned that Scott's gone and as it turns out he's actually been missing for a couple weeks and Angel wants Hank and Bobby to track him down. They finally do and he is at the dock at Jamaica Bay where the shuttle crash happened looking like hell wearing the same clothes he left in and obviously completely fucked in the head. He has been wandering around New York in a semi-fugue state for the last two weeks basically going to all of their old haunts all of which have changed. Yeah, um, he mentions at one point that the coffee a go go, the, the, the coffee bean, um, it's now a new wave sushi bar. So this raises an important question for me. Does Bernard the Poet still work there? Okay, so here's my take. I think he does. I think he just sort of came with the place, but he's kind of adapted with the times. So now he's a 1950s beat hibachi chef. So pop quiz, your buddy, who's already not the most stable dude, just disappears for several weeks, then reappears disoriented and obviously in the middle of some kind of massive breakdown. Do you A take him home, B, seek out mental health care, or C, talk him into being a superhero again. Yeah, I mean, I do agree. They really, uh, dragging him to join up and create X-Factor is probably not the best plan. 
And, you know, I have a lot of sympathy for Scott at this point. I mean, he mentions to Hank and Bobby that he's already mourned Jean. He's already gotten over her. He's moved on with his life. And here this is just jumping right back in. And honestly, I kind of felt like as a reader, I was in a similar place. I mean, I had made my peace after the Dark Phoenix saga with the death of Jean Grey. And here she is showing up again, and it's freaking disorienting. And I mean, I'll stand behind the decision to bring the character back because she's a great character, but this was such a strange way to do so, both in and out of universe. Like, he is so obviously not in his right mind at this point. And no one really seems to pick up on that except for Cameron Hodge, who uses it as as a way to basically drive a wedge into X-Factor over the next several arcs. But yeah, basically, Scott spends the first dozen to 15 issues of X-Factor in a gradually increasingly severe breakdown. Scott Summer's life kind of sucks, you know that? Yeah, he's. I mean, his life has been destroyed repeatedly by editorial mandate. Mm, dude. So back to the plot. Warren and, again, Cameron Hodge have a proposal for what to do now that they've got the band back together. Now, we mentioned Cameron Hodge in the cold open. All of that complicated stuff, none of that is here yet. What we know about him right now is that he's Warren's roommate. He works in Well, he's, PR. he's Warren's boarding school roommate. He's yeah, not yeah. still Warren's roommate. Right, he just never moved out. Oh, um, yeah, God. He's, he's Warren's boarding school roommate, and uh, he's got some mad, like, PR marketing organizational skills. Right, and he and Warren have put together a proposal for something called X-Factor. They figure, like, all right, what do we want to do? Well, we want to help mutants. We want to get mutants away from violent situations they might find themselves in since everyone hates them. How do we do that? Well, what we do is we make use of the paranoia around mutants, and we get the very people who would be putting mutants in danger to help us save them. And they do this by setting themselves up as a mutant hunting team. It's very, very clearly modeled on the Ghostbusters, which is kind of great. Yeah, Ghostbusters would have come out a few years before, and the parallels are pretty direct in places. Like, there are lines that are fairly clearly direct homage to Ghostbusters. Are there mutants in your community? How do you know? We can take care of it. If you know of dangerous mutant, let us know and we will contain them. So the plan is... People will call in reports of dangerous mutants. They'll hire X-Factor. X-Factor will come in, collect the mutants, take them back safely, make sure they're okay, offer them proper training, etc. The people on the other end won't know this. And the best part is their operating expenses will then be paid for by, you know, the anti-mutant folks who call on their services. It's actually a pretty sweet deal, except as is pointed out. I mean, I think Beast is probably the most freaked out one at this proposal. Yeah, the look on Beast's face when Cameron is playing the commercial is pretty shocked. This seems effective and functional, sure. But what we are also doing is stirring up even more anti-mutant sentiment by doing this. And that is going to hit a climax a few issues out from now. For now, though, let's go back to Rusty Collins, who is in prison, and Chief Asshole has just showed up to try to kill him. Obviously, uh, the Chief really cares about this woman, Emma, and he's like, hey, you almost killed her. It's time to kill you. If they want to investigate you, they can do an autopsy instead. Now, what Rusty does when he's panicked is accidentally start fires so rusty collins manages to accidentally break himself out of prison in fear of his life and the chief who doesn't quite know what to do and is worried about pursuing him since obviously rusty is a lot more dangerous than he is decides that he's gonna call this newfangled x-factor yeah, because, you know, he doesn't want to be found out. So X-Factor shows up. Now, not the entire team. It's just Scott, Bobby, and Gene, because Hank and Warren don't really look normally human. Warren can fake it, but the other problem with Warren is that he's actually out about his secret identity. And he's a very, very visible public figure. So if Warren Worthington III shows up, people will notice. One of the things I like is that they're all wearing sunglasses, so it doesn't look weird that Scott is. 
Oh, I, I always thought that was kind of a cool touch. And they're in these kind of um, very professional-looking jumpsuits, which for some reason have the X logo on them, which we've only ever seen on the X-Men, but I guess other people haven't really been paying attention to what's on people's belts. X-Factor also has another set of secret identities up their sleeves, and those are the Exterminators. Now, as X-Factor, they can't really use their mutant powers, which are their main arsenal. So they've got the secondary group, the Exterminators, who are super villains. Renegade mutants who can run around, blow things up, look like they're fighting against, you know, the government or whatever, and actually use their powers to partially subdue whatever renegade mutant they're after. Yeah, now these are the uh, the identities that we see on the cover to X-Factor number one. You know, the big X's, the different color-coded outfits. These are the costumes we think of as X-Factor, but in reality, yeah, X-Factor are the mutant hunters. The X-Terminators are these uh, unknown rebel mutants who happen to get involved all the time. It seems really bizarre to me that no one ever really makes the connection between the X-Terminators and the original five X-Men because they are obviously the same people. Anyway, so the five teammates, the original five X-Men in their X-Terminator garb, go after Rusty. They're trying to extract him from the situation, but he is seriously freaking out. He's blowing up helicopters left and right. And he doesn't really have control over his powers, and he's also terrified, justifiably, considering that he was almost murdered while in lockup. And the original five X-Men, they're working to bring him out of this, and they're working together incredibly well. This is the first time the five of them have worked together, I think, since the Silver Age. At one point, Scott thinks to himself, this is really working. I belong here with these four people. With Gene. Nowhere else. Only here with X-Factor do I have any chance of making a difference. Of doing some good. But then, what about Madeline? Oh, what about Madeline indeed? Yeah, but the fact is, Scott is really pretty ecstatic to be working with an X-Team again, fighting the good fight, feeling like he really has a place in the world. This is what he was looking for back in Uncanny X-Men number 201, the reason that he tried to lead the team even though he really wasn't qualified compared to Storm, and now he feels like he's finally found it, and everyone's basically giving him the encouragement and positive feedback that he really, really wants. Cough enabling, cough. Or yes, possibly <laughs> enabling him. And that's the thing, I mean, they're all just so excited to be working together. They do eventually subdue Rusty, I love the scene where they talk to Chief Fisher afterward, like, all right, well, you know, we took care of him. Now there's the simple matter of the fee. That will be $42,000, When he is shocked, this is where they pull in Ghostbusters quotes and say, well, you can, we can just put him back where we found him. Which really just makes me start thinking of Rusty Collins as Slimer from Ghostbusters. Like, even when he hooks up with uh, Sally Blevins' skids later, and so it's just Slimer, you know, trying to mac on skids, and it just gets really weird, and there's slime all over her force field. Miles. It's just a very novel mashup, is what I'm saying. It, it is pretty novel. Um, it is also entertaining because Rusty is, like, the nicest, quietest kid ever. He he kind of makes Cannonball look like a jerk, it's true. Anyway, so yes, they do basically blackmail Chief Fisher into paying them, and once Rusty is conscious again, they're able to talk him down, keep him calm, say, hey, we're going to help you, we're going to take care of you. Explain the plot, which he thinks is pretty rad. And this basically, in the eyes of X-Factor, our original five X-Men, was not only a complete success, but them all getting to a place they've really, really missed, which is working together as a very effective team, doing the right thing. The issue almost ends with Gene saying, this is really going to work, isn't it, Warren? You bet, Gene. X-Factor is here to stay. 
Unfortunately, back in Alaska, Madeline Pryor sits alone on the couch wrapped in a blanket as an X Factor commercial plays in the background. Yeah, it's definitely a downer ending, but this book, I mean, you know, there's a lot of darkness to it, and certainly later on we'll see plenty once Simonson takes over, but even here at the start, there's the specter of the terrible decisions that Scott Summers is making about his marriage hanging really over everything. Yeah, and those are going to, again, continue to to define the character in the series for a pretty long time. Alright, so like we were saying, Bob Layton gets a lot of flack for his run. I think as a first issue, I mean, you know, what he does a little bit after this we'll go into in another episode, but as a first issue, I think this is pretty successful. I agree. My X Factor is obviously the Simonson's X Factor, but the first issue very, very much sets the tone for that run. Even for someone like me who didn't grow up with the Silver Age, it really hits all the nostalgia buttons. Seeing these five characters working together again is pretty damn heartwarming. It's changing and messing with a lot of character development for an editorially mandated retcon. It's doing its best, and Layton's doing his best, to do that in organic ways. Some of that Claremont has built up in X-Men 200 and 201, but a lot of it comes out of this issue and the subsequent issues of X-Factor and what we see of that arc. Absolutely. Now, speaking of Claremont, one thing I find interesting is his reaction to the Jean Grey retcon. Up to this point, it's worth remembering the X-Men line, like we said, was basically Chris Claremont. He wrote every ongoing title, he wrote almost every miniseries, and he had a lot of oversight of the line until this point. And so he didn't know about X-Factor to begin with, but mainly he didn't know about the resolution of the Dark Phoenix saga being undone until it was already confirmed to be happening. Now, Anne Nascenti was editing at this point. Uh, She told Claremont about this, and she did it by taking him out to dinner and then waiting to tell him until she knew that the Marvel office switchboard would be closed so he couldn't call Jim Shooter and quit. In fact, we found this quote again at that website we mentioned earlier, which we'll link. And there's also more discussion of this in the documentary, actually a lot more discussion of this in the documentary Chris Claremont's X-Men and a little bit in the Sean Howe book Marvel Comics The Untold Story. And most of these narratives pretty much line up, but you can see different angles on them from all of those sources. So Claremont says... The fact is, Anne did a smart thing. If I'd actually gone in to see Shooter on Friday night, I would have quit. I was so pissed off. I couldn't believe what they did to Cyclops. He was supposed to be a hero, and they had him walking out on his wife and newborn child not even thinking twice about it. And instead, he spent the weekend coming up with alternatives to prevent it from happening. Um, One of those actually revolved around Sarah Gray, Jean's sister, as a latent mutant who would basically have the powers of Cerebro to detect mutants and uh, determine what their powers were. And actually to trigger their powers when she got nearby. He wrote up this whole pitch about it. Apparently she'd had a run-in, I, I think, maybe with the Atlanteans and had had some power stuff done. So his justification was, well, after that, the late mutant powers could trigger. We could totally make this work, guys. Just don't make Scott do this. And don't bring Jean back. But it was too late, so it did happen. It really never sat right with Claremont. He does consider that to be the moment when Cyclops was ruined as a character. Now, there's no confirmation on this, but it is rumored that the reason that the creative team, or specifically the writer, Bob Layton, was off X-Factor so soon was that since Claremont was so angry and was so important to the X-Line, they wanted to get somebody to write the book that he would be more willing to work with, and that ended up being Louise Simonson, formerly Louise Jones, his editor for a very long time. Right, who had been really involved in in his X-Men run since very near the beginning, if I remember correctly. So there you have it, the beginning of our third major series. So we're going to be uh, pinballing back and forth between X-Men, New Mutants, and X-Factor. We'll see uh, how we can make this work. It's... We might get to 1987 by 2016. <laughs> it's, it's possible. In the meantime, you've got questions. Brad Reed emailed us to ask, Do you think the series would have been better if the original planned lineup for X-Factor had been used and Gene stayed dead? Uh, you know, I'm of two minds. I mean, I do certainly feel that the Gene Grey retcon, and I've mentioned this before, 
cheapens the Dark Phoenix saga a little bit and turns Cyclops into more of a jerk than I wish he had been uh, by forcing him to leave Madeline. But at the same time, X-Factor would not have been the book that it turned into if Jean Grey wasn't there. I mean, Dazzler's a great character. I have a lot of love for her. But the original five characters just have so much history together to work from, and Jean has so much depth, and Jean and Scott's relationship is really textured. So I think the book gains a whole lot from her presence individually as much as from specifically having all of the original X-Men together. And also, that's probably the only way that they could have narratively gotten Scott to join another superhero team after essentially getting kicked off the X-Men, was by having either Gene or, you know, if, if Xavier was back, Xavier sort of uh, prompt him to do so. Jamie Lovett also emailed us to ask, Thanks to a later retcon, we discovered that the Jean Grey who went all evil and genocidal in the Dark Phoenix saga was not actually Jean Grey, but the Phoenix incarnate impersonating her. Jean Grey was actually still at the bottom of the bay when the X-Men crash landed. Rachel Gray is the alternate timeline future daughter of Scott and Jean, but as you mentioned in episode 50, the Jean in her timeline was accepted by her family and never went dark. But at that point, wouldn't it have actually been the Phoenix Incarnate since Jean had been left at the bottom of the bay by that point? Does that mean that Rachel is actually the daughter of Scott and the Phoenix Force itself, or did Jean not get left behind for the Phoenix to take her place in Rachel's timeline? And I have to say, this question is a pretty good summary of why we're doing this podcast. Okay, the simple answer to this is that in Earth 811... The Phoenix Force didn't replace Jean and merged with her. Now, Earth 811, to clarify, is the Days of Future Past Future. That right, that's the, tam- that's the timeline that Rachel Summers come from. So she is the kid of Scott, Jean, and the Phoenix Force, which also explains her closer connection to the Phoenix Force. But as far as the actual plotting, from what I've read, Claremont didn't even hear about the Jean Grey retcon until he was already working on Uncanny X-Men number 198, which is Life, Death 2. And the whole deal with Rachel going into that flashback was in 199, just one issue later. So based on writing schedules, I'm guessing that issue was already mostly, if not entirely, written by the time he heard about this. A lot of the effects of the Phoenix Retcon ripple retroactively because it was pulled in so secretly and so much at the very, very last minute. Okay, so uh, we are supported by our kind Patreon folks, and one of the things that some of them get if they donate at a certain level is thank yous from various characters and forces, so let's talk to the angry narrator. You did what you thought was necessary for the greater good, Seth, but by abandoning Chad Smith to the dire wraiths, what greater horror may you have unleashed upon the cosmos? And I believe that we've got some more thanks, but for those, I will have to turn it over to Sexy Dracula. The X-Men are passionate, fiery, sensual. To watch their romantic games, even the misguided endeavors of the mortal Cyclops, is a rare pleasure in the endless life of Dracula. Pat Molman and Scott Devaney understand the call of a fast-beating heart. The hot blood of desire, even the arousing sting of envy, are the only ways to ward off the grave's chill. Don't worry, Madeline Pryor. All three of us are waiting for you with the patience of eternity in Sexy Castle Dracula. So is Sexy Castle Dracula like normal Castle Dracula? I mean, it's, it's really sexy, obviously. Okay. Well, there you have it. And with that, I think we are out of time. Rachel and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in Portland, Oregon, and produced by Bobby Roberts, the producer of the Geek Remix Trilogy of Pop Culture Mashup Albums and co-host of the Star Wars podcast, Full of Sith. New episodes of Rachel and Miles Explain the X-Men come out every Sunday on iTunes, Stitcher, and our website, rachelandmiles.com. Check out rachelandmiles.com for all kinds of extra content, episode companion posts, essays, fan art, X-Men evolution recaps, and much, much more. This podcast is totally listener-supported and ad-free because of our generous Patreon supporters. Guys, thank you always so much. If you 
you'd like to become a supporter, check out the link at the top of our website and check out the cool new milestone goals we have. Next week, we'll be back with the Uncanny X-Men and Wolverine's first clash with Lady Deathstrike. (laughs) 